So 1 Chronicles 21. We'll begin there in just a moment. We'll start by saying that it's possible to do the wrong thing for the right reasons. I can be absolutely right in my judgment, even in my motivation, and I can still do the wrong thing. And David exemplifies this in 1 Chronicles 21. He has learned, possibly better than any other man, how to be aligned with the heart of God. A man after God's own heart, right? That phrase we've heard so many times about King David. But in 1 Chronicles 21, he goes down for the count. Motivated, I believe, for the right reason, but does the wrong thing. And that's so easy to happen in our lives. I I remind you, as we head into this chapter, David is in his mid to late 70s now. In fact, after this chapter, he prepares for the temple building. We'll talk a little bit about that. Solomon comes into his reign. David's going to die. It'll all be over. So he's in the latter years of his life, and he makes a decision that is possibly the worst decision of his entire life, at least as far as what we have in Scripture, in 1 Chronicles 21. So let's uh, take a look at this. Verse 1, Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and to the princes of the people, Go, number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan. Bring me word that I may know their number. Joab, he said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. But my lord the king, are they not all my lord's servants? Why does my lord seek this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt to Israel? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the number of the census of all the people to David. And all Israel were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword. And Judah was 470,000 men who drew the sword. (laughs) But Joab did not number Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's command was abhorrent. To Joab. Verse 7 tells us God was displeased with this thing, so he struck Israel. The census that David calls for here is a fighting man's census, a number of all the men in Israel who drew the sword. I want to know, he's asking Joab and his commanders, I want to know how many men, men can fight. I want to know how strong my force is, how big. He's numbering his military muscle. Why is that such a problem? God commanded Moses to do it in the book of Numbers early on. He said, I want you to number all the men of Israel who are able to fight 20 years old and up. And so Moses does that. It's not a sin. It's not a problem. Here it is. Joab, who's not the most sensitive man in the Scriptures, himself recognizes this is problematic. This is the wrong thing to do. Now, 1 Chronicles 21 parallels 2 Samuel 24. And we've already studied through First and Second Samuel, so we, we've been kind of looking at some of the parallels back and forth, things omitted, things added. But in the parallel of these two chapters, First Chronicles 21, 2 Samuel 24, there is one major difference. One that stands out as you read it, that seems completely different than what we just read here. Let me read to you first verse 1 again. Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. 2 Samuel 24, verse 1 says, Now the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it incited David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. That's pretty substantial. Samuel says the Lord incited David. Or at least the Lord's anger did. The chronicler 
tells us that Satan incited him. Well, which one is it? Is it God or is it Satan Satan who incited David here to do the count? Now recognize the Lord, Samuel tells us, the Lord is angry with Israel. That much we know. The why, as far as why that anger incited, it's irrelevant to the story. Why was he angry? What was it that Israel was doing? What ticked the Lord off at this time? We don't know. There's, There's no hint or clue anywhere in Scripture. The issue is, because the Lord was angry... David gets angry. We've talked about in here before, a righteous anger. There is a righteous anger. There is a time when anger is not sin. In fact, the Bible says, be angry yet do not sin. It's okay to get angry. There are times I get ticked off with the things I see going on in our world and in the news, and not just politically. I get ticked off spiritually when I see and read about things. I read about something I couldn't believe going on in the Congo, exorcisms of children. Children, young kids, five, six, seven years old, and these pastors who are of non-denominational churches with no biblical training whatsoever have set up for themselves these healing centers where they are exercising demons and witches out of children to the point that children are burned with hot wax. Children are even dying in these so-called exorcisms. A five-year-old being called a witch. That ticks me off righteously angry. I read this and I go, man, that's just not right. That's okay. That's a righteous anger. And I believe this is where David is at the beginning of the chapter. God is angry in Israel and the man after God's own heart, he's angry too. Man, the Lord's upset. I'm upset. But it can still move you to do the wrong thing. Jesus was angry when he went into the temple. And he drove out the money changers and the animals and turned over the tables and the money went everywhere. He handled it exactly right. If I were with Jesus, I might have seen his anger and said, Yes, Lord! Yes! Time to get angry! And it would have been, you know, taking people out, getting into brawls over in the corner while Jesus is driving the animals out. I'm over there drawing blood, and, and I can just see it happening. And Jesus is going, No, 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 Rick. It's okay to be angry. But you've just gone across the line. And I think that's what's going on here with David. I believe he's angry because God is angry. And so, he takes the census. He calls for a numbering of the IDF. Israeli Defense Forces. So, Rick, are you saying that God's anger then incited David? I'm not exactly saying that. James chapter 1, verse 13 says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Now that word lust, we immediately think of sexual sin, but lust can be anything that you have a passionate desire for. And temptation comes in when we are enticed by something that we desire. Something that we want. Something we're hungry for. David was carried away and enticed. Not by a sexual thing, but enticed by that whole anger. Enticed, I believe, by power. Ezra clarifies this for us. First uh, Chronicles 21, verse 1 again says, Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. That was Satan's part of the deal. He moves David. He incites him. He throws that lust out there. Hey, you know what you need to do right now? God's mad at Israel. Israel's messing up. You need to flex your muscle, Dave. You need to figure out how many fighting men you have so you can tell the people of Israel, I'm going to call my army out on all of you if you don't shape up. Show me my might. Show me my strength. So let's get this very clearly because we need to understand before we go any further. The Lord is angry at Israel. 
David in turn becomes angry with Israel as well. But rather than turn to the Lord, he's twisted by temptation. And that's the key lesson here. We can be moved by a righteous anger. An anger even originally aligned with the Lord. And Satan can twist it into temptation to do the wrong thing. Ironically, it's often when I know I'm in the right that a certain surreptitious motive rises up in me to justify wrong behavior. I may be in the right to be angry about abortion. Does that give me the right then to do damage to an abortion clinic or to murder, as happened recently, you probably read it in the news, another abortion doctor? Do I now have that right? Hey, the person who murdered the abortion doctor, I agree with the anger. And the motivation behind it, I don't agree with anything having to do with, with murder. I don't think you can justify that at all. But I agree with the sense that, man, he has to be stopped because on a daily basis he's killing people. I understand that. That makes sense to me. We need to find a way to stop this. But to take it the next step, right motive, wrong behavior, and to murder someone over it, you've now just stepped right into sin and you're contrary to the will of God. And that's what's going on here. Well, what is the sin of David? Again, Moses numbered the people at God's command. Numbers chapter 26, verse 51, tells us there were 601,730 fighting men. David now has increased the number of the army of Israel and Judah. His massive fighting force is is more than a million stronger than it was under Moses. When you add in Judah, there's more than a million new fighters here in this massive, powerful army of David. And who needs God when you've got such a great army? Who needs the Lord when you've got that kind of power? Why rely on the Father when you've amassed such strength? Here's the sin, gang. It's the obvious one. Pride. The motivation, the thing that David stepped into, that Satan incited him to, was pride. I'm going to see how strong I really am. I'm going to flex a little bit here. Oh, it's so different than David's attitude when he was a young man and he fought Goliath. 1 Samuel 17.45, David shouting to Goliath says, You come at me with sword and spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. That's all David had. And a few pebbles. I come at you in the name of God. That's my strength. That's where my trust is. That's where my power lies. Not in anything that I have. i got nothing. I don't even have armor because they couldn't find anything that fit me. Just God's name. That's where my strength is. And he trusted in the Lord as that young man. Now who's counting swords and spears and javelins? David is. Now he's looking at the flesh, the physical. You may remember in a more recent battle, we talked about on Sunday, David faced a giant named Ishibanab. He lives on the heights. This great giant. And David is weary in the battle and would have been killed if his cousin Abishai hadn't stepped in and saved his life. No wonder David wants to know how strong his military arm truly is. No wonder he wants some sense of power. And so David goes down for the count. He leans on his own pride rather than on the Lord. And gang, that is a big deal to God. If I were to tell you what I believe America's biggest problem as a country is, it wouldn't be national debt. And it wouldn't be one political party in power over another. It would be pride. America's biggest problem is pride. How many times in your life have you heard the phrase, we live in the greatest country in the world? 
You know what made this country great? It wasn't smart men who came up with this great Magna Carta, this great, you know, declaration. What made this country great was it was founded in humility around trust in a God who had a plan for this people. That's where it all started. But we are a prideful country now. You know, we can bail out our economy. We can do it. Pride. Have our leaders called for even one day of prayer for God's provision. We can fix the ailing auto industry. Really, because we're in the driver's seat, right? <laughs> we can heal the healthcare industry. Anybody want to check with the great physician and see what his plan is? We can save the planet. Really? Have we forgotten who the Creator is? Do you realize, and if, you're, if you happen to really go green in your life, I apologize. Well, no, I don't, but I just say, you know, I love you anyway, and you can love me, and we'll get by this, but uh, I'm sorry. The whole attitude of environmentalism is, is arrogant. As if we have the power to save our world. Take care of it, yes. Be good stewards, absolutely. But save it? Come on. Are you kidding me? Stand in the waves in Southern California and see how long you can stand there. You'll get knocked down because the water's stronger than you are, wimp. (laughs) We don't have that kind of power. But we do have that kind of pride, don't we? We can do all these things. America is the greatest country in the history of the world. I wonder how often that was stated during the days of Egypt in their heyday. Or Babylon. Or Rome. We have the greatest country in the world, man. Where is Rome today? Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23, thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, and that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Let me ask you, so what is the opposite of pride? The answer is typically humility, isn't it? I wonder if maybe there's another answer. That the opposite of pride is not humility. The opposite of pride is prayer. Because the more prideful I am, it's interesting how this works in our lives. You want to check yourself on the pride meter? How's your prayer life? How much time are you spending praying about whatever situation you're involved in, as opposed to how much time are you spending working it out in your own strength? There's your meter right there. Prayer is on one side and pride is on the other side. And the more prayerful you are, I guarantee you, the more humble you will be. The more prideful you are, the less prayerful you will be. David wrote in Psalm 118, verse 8, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. So, David's trusting in his strength. He's prideful. He's puffed up. He wants to see how great his army has become. And after the count, he finally realizes his sin. Verse 8. David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing. But now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And that sounds like a prayer I might pray. When I realize I've stepped over the line, I've done something kind of stupid, Lord. I'm sorry. I did it again. And I, you know, I recognize David's words here. I love the fact that this man after God's own heart is repentant. He does confess. He does recognize sin. 
is always foolish. Notice he says, I've sinned greatly in all that I have done, but now take the iniquity of your servant away, for I have done very foolishly. Sin and foolishness, same thing. Sin is always stupid. Sin is always lame. Sin is always deceptive, regardless of what comes out of Hollywood or the Internet. Regardless of what the world points to and says, well, this is fashionable now. Hey, if it's sin, it's dumb. Period. One of the things that sets David apart as a man after God's own heart is he truly desired close, intimate relationship with the Lord. And so he's repentant. He confesses. But even in this prayer, I wonder... I'm I'm probably reading into it, okay? So this is just Rick's opinion here. This is not biblical truth. but, But I read it and I wonder if David recognizes how serious this sin really is. I sin greatly. And he does say greatly. Take away the sin from your servant. The problem is the sin will affect a whole lot more than just God's servant David. Verse 9. The Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer or prophet, saying, Go and speak to David, saying, Thus says the Lord, I will offer you three things. Choose for yourself one of them, which I will do to you. Here comes the punishment phase. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Take for yourself either three years of famine, or three months to be swept away before your foes, while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, even pestilence in the land, and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now therefore consider, what answer shall I return to him who sent me? And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. And now he gets it. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for His mercies are very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel. Watch this. 70,000 men of Israel fell. Are we starting to realize how serious the sin of pride really is? 70,000 people, God said, that's it. The Lord would send a pestilence. Now, what's interesting here based solely on the Lord's reaction on the punishment that followed, we could easily say this is by far David's worst sin. Oh, wait a minute. What about Bathsheba? What about the adulterous affair? Isn't that worse than running a count of the size of the army? Watching a woman bathe or opening up an Excel spreadsheet, which is worse. I mean, you would think there's no comparison. And in our American mindset, gang, we tend to think of sexual sin as the worst of all possible sins. Hey, sexual sin is still sin, but it's not the worst. Let me explain what I mean by that. Sins of the flesh are rarely as damaging long-term as sin, the sin of prideful unbelief. Now, I am not saying, please don't get me wrong, I am not saying adultery and fornication and sexual sin is... You know, it's all right. I'm not. It is sin. And it is wrong. And it has dire consequences that come with it. But it's against the body. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 6.18, Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. So it's a sin against your body. And I don't mean to undermine the point Paul is making, but while sexual sin is sin against your body, prideful unbelief works against your spirit, and that's an eternal issue. Jesus said in Matthew 10.28, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Sexual immorality, David and Bathsheba, man, that was a serious thing. But comparatively, look at the difference of the shockwaves of this. 
In the David and Bathsheba story, after the adulterous affair and the murder of Uriah the Hittite, one of David's 30 mighty men, after all that happens, what is the fallout? The child born of that adulterous affair dies. One child. Not saying that's not awful, it is. What is the fallout of David's sin of counting the men of Israel? 70,000 die. Now just looking at the numbers, which is a little more serious to the Lord? Pride is incredibly dangerous. We have almost come to accept self-reliance as a godly thing, haven't we? Well, the Lord helps those who help themselves. First book of opinions, chapter 1. You know, you cannot find that verse in Scripture. It's not there. The opposite is true. It's not the Lord helps those who help themselves. It's the Lord helps the helpless. The Lord helps those who cannot help themselves. The Lord helps those who recognize their need and in humility and pridelessness pray to the Lord and say, Help me, God. Because I can't do this. I don't have the power in and of myself. Self-reliance, I will go this far as to say, self-reliance is ungodly because it replaces faith. I'm relying on me. I can work this out. I can do this. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. So back to David. He has three options. Three years of famine, three months of foes, or three days of pestilence. I love this about David. The only one he rejects is the conquest of the enemies. He says, please don't let me fall under the hand of man. In other words, let me fall into the hand of the Lord. Let, let the Lord do whatever he decides to do. Just don't make it through the hand of man. Why does David choose that? Because he recognized God is merciful. God is a loving God. And he would rather be in God's hands than man's hands. I think faith is returning here a bit for David. He realizes he's better off in the hands of the Lord than in the hands of the enemy. Look at verse 14 again. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel. 70,000 men of Israel fell. That's the third time we've read that verse. What's the point of that? We need to understand that confession never rules out consequence. Confession never rules out consequence. Just because we confess, just because we repent, doesn't mean that the Lord is going to go, oh, okay, good, we're all good then. No problem. There is still consequence to sin. We can repent, confess, and we can know the Lord hears us and forgives us, but there may yet be ramifications. And sometimes, in fact, much of the time, it's not even the Lord bringing the ramifications. It's our own sin. Paul says in Galatians 6, verse 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Pray for Anna Marie because she is sowing um, peach seeds. She ate a peach, had the seed, dried it out. The next day she's, she's gone out. She's planted about six peach seeds out there. I, I don't know. Does that work? Can you buy a peach in the store and eat it and stick this out? I don't think we're going to see anything come out of this, but... Uh, Whatever man sows, this he will also reap unless it's a peach seed out of the store. For one sows to his flesh, and he will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So if you plant, we talked about this verse a long time ago. If you take a hunk of meat, a hunk of flesh, and you bury it in the ground and wait ten days and go dig it up, what do you think you're going to find? A meat tree? (laughs) It's going to be a nasty maggot-filled, skanky thing. This is what happens when we sow sin in our lives. 
That's part of the reason the Lord hates sin. He says, don't sin. Flee in our immorality. Don't do it. Why? Because you sow it, and guess what? It's going to come back and bite you. It's going to grow up corrupt, and it will affect you. Our own sin choices will yield a crop all of their own. Yeah, but, okay, back to the story. Why did 70,000 people in Israel fall because of one man's sin? I'm not sure they did. They fell. But I'm not sure it's because of one man. Remember how this whole story begins in 2 Samuel 24. It tells us the Lord's anger burned against Israel. God was already mad with Israel. He's already upset. So I personally doubt we're talking about 70,000 innocent people here. I think what we're seeing is the ramification, the fallout of God's anger toward Israel and of David's sin coming to a head together. Either way, the punishment fit the crime. David counted on his mighty men, so uh, on his mighty army, so God whittled it down by 70,000. Verse 15. God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy, the Lord saw and was sorry over the calamity. And said to the destroying angel, and here's the loving kindness, the mercy of God, It is enough. Now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Interesting. David's come a long way since his sin with Bathsheba. He is going to accept some responsibility here. As we read on just a bit further. It tells us David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven with his drawn sword in his hand stretched out over Jerusalem. And David said to the elders covered with sackcloth, David and the elders covered with sackcloth fell on their faces and David said to God, Is it not I who commanded to count the people? Indeed, I am the one who has sinned and done very wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? O Lord my God, please let your hand be against me and my father's household, but not against your people, that they should be plagued. David is finally taking full responsibility for his actions. Regardless of what's going on between God and the people and God's anger for the people, David says, look, blame me. Let, let the, the punishment be on me and my father's house, but not on the people. He is acting, gang, like the shepherd that he is. This is the heart of David, who killed the lion, putting his own life at risk that he might protect his sheep on the hills of Bethlehem. This is the David who fought the bear with his bare hands that he might protect his sheep. The Lord said in 1 Chronicles 17, 7, I took you from the pasture, David, from following the sheep, to be a leader over my people Israel. And we see in David's confession and his crying out to God as he sees this destroying angel coming, he says, please Lord, let it be on me. We see the shepherd heart of the shepherd king David who truly loved and cared for his people. But then the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. This is interesting. So David went up at the word of Gad, which he spoke in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan turned back and saw the angel. And his four sons who were with him hid themselves. And Ornan was threshing wheat. (laughs) I don't know if that's funny to you, but to me that's, that's interesting. Ornan sees the angel, this destroying angel, the one that David cries out about. Ornan's four sons see the angel and they flee. They get out of there. Ornan looks up and goes, huh, and goes back to, you know, doing his job. Working the wheat. 
As David came to Ornan, verse 21, Ornan looked and saw David and went out from the threshing floor and prostrated himself before David with his face to the ground. (laughs) Now the king comes and he goes, oh, all right. And why would he do that? Well, Ornan's a Jebusite, the conquered people, several of whom still live in Jerusalem, but he recognized the power of David. He knew who David was. Interesting that he was more afraid of David. Well, then David said to Ornan, Give me the site of this threshing floor, that I may build on it an an altar to the Lord. For the full price you shall give it to me, that the plague may be restrained from the people. Ornan said to David, Take it for yourself, and let my lord the king do what is good in his sight. See, I will give the oxen for burnt offerings, and the threshing sledges for wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I'll give it all. Take it. Everything you see, David, it's yours. Take it. Use it. Let this be... For the sacrifice, watch what David says. He says to Ornan, verse 24, No, I will surely buy it for the full price, for I will not take what is yours for the Lord or offer a burnt offering which cost me nothing. Something to be learned from that attitude. So David gave Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. That's about $230,000 roughly, 15 pounds of gold. And then David built an altar to the Lord there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and he called to the Lord and he answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of burnt offering. The Lord commanded the angel and he put his sword back in its sheath. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he offered sacrifices there. The threshing floor of Ornan is, I believe, the most significant or Well, I think it's the most significant piece of real estate in the entire world, and it's also the most disputed. Because what we're talking about here, this exact location, is the Temple Mount. This is where David offers this sacrifice to stem the tide of of God's wrath against the people on what would later be the site of the Temple. Solomon's Temple would be built there. In fact, several temples, and we'll talk about those. Ornan, the Jebusite, probably didn't realize the significance of this piece of property. He might have charged a little more. (laughs) He didn't understand what he was sitting on there. Now, for him, it was a threshing floor. That's interesting. The threshing floor is where they would go to separate the wheat from the chaff. They would take all the wheat that had been brought in, they would throw it up in the sky, and the wind would blow through, and all the loose kernels and and stuff that was no good, that would tend to blow away, and the good wheat would fall back down to the ground. And they would throw it up, and they'd they'd just continue, continue doing that. That was threshing. And this occurred right up there on the top of a place called Mount Moriah where a thousand years earlier Abraham had gone to that exact spot to offer up his son Isaac, Genesis 22. A place of sacrifice that the Lord told Abraham to go to. Now Ornan is there and the Lord tells David through the angel sacrifice on this same location. Why here? Because a thousand years later Jesus would be sacrificed on Mount Moriah in the same location, the place of sacrifice. If you go to Israel, we'll show you some interesting things on the Temple Mount. Right, Spencer? Especially if it's pouring down rain and hail. That's when it's really fun. But we'll show you some things, some locations, some possibilities, even the fact... Well, I won't won't get into that. You've got to go to Israel for me to finish that sentence. But some amazing things there, the threshing floor of Ornan, the Temple Mount... Now, I want you to recognize something here. David legitimately purchases this piece of land. He legitimately buys it. The place where the altar would find a permanent home, the first temple, the Temple of Solomon, would soon be built there. 
500 years after it was built, roughly it would be destroyed by Babylon on the 9th of Av, 586 B.C. 2 Chronicles 36.19 tells us they, that is Babylon, burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. That was the first temple. The second temple was built after the captivity. Ezra chapter 3, verses 8 8 through 13. We won't read that tonight. We'll get to that actually in a uh, month or two. We'll be in Ezra. Maybe even sooner. I don't know. But after the captivity, they would come back. Ezra leading the people. And then Zerubbabel would help in the building of the second temple. And while the young men rejoiced, the old men, Ezra tells us, wept. Probably because as they looked at the two, they looked back in memory to David's temple, which or Solomon's temple, which was absolutely stunning. And to the second temple, which really wasn't a whole lot to look at, but at least it was a temple. They got something built there. So later, Herod did a massive remodel of the second temple. And again, 500 years later, on the 9th of Av, 70 A.D., same date, 9th of Av, 586, 9th of Av, 70 A.D., the temple would be destroyed yet again, this time by Rome. Jesus predicted that 40 years earlier in Matthew 24, verse 1. When He came out from the temple and was going away, and His disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to Him. And He said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. A third temple will be built on the threshing floor of Ornan. Well, we can't even call it that anymore because it no longer belongs to Ornan. It belongs to David and the people of Israel. David purchased it legitimately. A third temple is going to be built there. How do you know that, Rick? Well, prophecy indicates that there will be, there has to be actually, for prophecy to be fulfilled literally, there has to be a new temple standing on that site when Antichrist rises. Let me give you just a couple of quick verses. Matthew 24, 15, Jesus said, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, the holy place is in the temple, let the reader understand that those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Oh, well, Rick, that happened in 70 AD. No, it didn't. There was no abomination of desolation set up in the temple at 70 AD. That did not yet happen. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul said, Let no one in any way deceive you. It will not come about, that is the day of the Lord, unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Check this out. Who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, has to enter the temple on the temple mount and claim himself to be God. That's something that has never happened. And that's why... Scripture's clear, a third temple is going to be built on the Temple Mount. Watch for it. Keep your eyes on the news as to what's going on with the temple and the idea of building it in Jerusalem. In the late 80s, a group of uh, Jews climbed the temple wall and set about the process of trying to destroy the Dome of the Rock Mosque so that the third temple could be built. And there is a, a movement in Israel even today to be in complete preparation and readiness. They are ready to go. They lack one or two small things before rebuilding that third temple. When it goes up, watch out. A fourth temple will be built on this site as well. You can call it the Millennial Temple. Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, 
For he will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of the Lord. This is a messianic prophecy. Messiah, who is also called branch, will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he will, who will bear the honor and sit, on the rule, and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne and the council of peace will be between the two offices, that is, priest and king. We're talking about Messiah, Jesus Christ, who is also called Branch. You Bible students remember where the name Branch fits in prophetically? Does anyone remember? Why is Jesus called Branch and how does that connect? The word Branch in Hebrew is Netzer. It's where the word Nazarene comes from. He will be called Netzer, Jesus of Nazareth, the branch. A fifth temple, a fifth temple after the millennial kingdom, after the millennial temple, will not be built. Some have wondered, is there going to be another one kind of on into eternity? And Revelation 21:22, speaking of New Jerusalem, says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. Now, I, I took you all through that, this history, both pre and, and post, for a specific reason, I want you to think about the fact that of all the locations on planet Earth, God had a specific design for this one. This is the spot. This is the touchstone, if you will, of God's work on Earth. This is the place of Abraham's sacrifice. This is the place of all the sacrifices across the years in the temples. And this is the place of Jesus' sacrifice. And there are some curious pictures here. If you'd like to go back and look at some of these things, the fact that, that uh, fire from heaven came down on the altar of burnt offering and, and completely burned up. I mean, that, that's a picture that, of fire, of the wrath of God being poured out on a sacrifice, which is what happened on the cross. And if you look and see what happened when, when the, uh, the, the offer was, offering was given and the sacrifice given, it tells us in verse 27, the Lord commanded the angel and he put his sword back in his sheath. What happened after the sacrifice of Christ? A Roman soldier put his sword in the sheath of the side of Jesus. There are pictures throughout Scripture that remind us this is the place where the ultimate sacrifice would happen. But I remind you again, David bought this legitimately. In case anyone ever wonders, who has the legal right to the Temple Mount, the big disputed piece of property in the world today? Is it the Jordanians? Is it the Palestinians? Is it the Israelis? Who really has the right? Well, the tribe of Judah has the right. It is owned, lock, stock, and barrel by David, and you have evidence of the title deed in your hands. When David paid legitimate money for this, this piece of land. But listen again one more time to David's heart on this purchase. Ornan offers all the land as a gift, along with wood and oxen for sacrifice. David says in verse 24, No, I will surely buy it for the full price, for I will not take what is yours for the Lord, or offer a burnt offering which cost me nothing. This is how our giving should be. I will not give to the Lord what costs me nothing. I'm not going to give to the Lord out of my surplus. Anybody can do that. I just won the lottery. Well, I didn't, but let's say I did. $217 million. I'm going to give the Lord $50,000 of that. That cost me nothing. I could give Him the whole $217 million that I won, and it cost me nothing. Our giving gain is not to be an afterthought. It's not the leftover at the end of the month in case I have enough after I pay the bills and the groceries. That requires no faith. The Lord attaches faith and giving intimately. The whole purpose of giving is not because we have something that God needs. It's because we have something that we need to give. 
that our faith would increase, that we're trusting Him, and it should cost. It should cost. I'm just giving my opinion, but I think it's pretty well backed up by Scripture that our giving should be costly. You recognize, let me put it this way, the amount of what you give, and I'm talking financially, let's just be brash about it, I'm talking about your money. The amount that you give is not the Lord's concern. It's the cost of your giving that matters to God. I've shared before that a college student making 100 bucks a month, if they give $10, is giving more than a person who makes $100,000 a month and doesn't give 10% of that. Does it cost you when you give to the Lord? Not when you give to the bridge. I'm not asking, it's not a pledge drive. Does it cost you to give to the Lord? The difference between giving from faith and giving out of obligation is directly related to the amount of the cost to you and to me. Jesus makes this clear. Mark 12.41, He sat down opposite the treasury. He began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury and many rich people were putting in large sums. Jesus is watching this. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which amount to about a cent. Calling His disciples to Him, He said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. David says, I will not offer something to the Lord that costs me nothing. There should be a cost. There should be a, okay, I'm trusting you this week, Lord, because there's no other way I can afford to do this. There on Mount Moriah, David offered a costly sacrifice, reminding us again that the most costly sacrifice would be paid out on that same location a thousand years later, on that rocky outcropping called Golgotha. And Peter says in 1 Peter 1.18, and here's our motivation for giving more than anything else, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood. As of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Let me ask you, did what Jesus gave, did what Jesus gives, cost? Was that a costly gift? Remember that next time you're walking by the offering box. What did it cost? Verse 29. After David offers a sacrifice there, it says, The tabernacle of the Lord which Moses had made in the wilderness and the altar burnt offering were at the high place at Gabeon at that time. We talked about this. The tabernacle was there and the the, uh, Ark of the Covenant was actually in a tent in Jerusalem. The two were separate until Solomon's temple was built and they were brought all kind of back together. And it tells us, verse 30, interesting verse, but David could not go before it to inquire of God for he was terrified by the sword of the angel of the Lord. What, What does that mean? Was there an angel with a sword at Gabeon that wouldn't let David go? No. David was terrified by the sword of the angel of the Lord there in Jerusalem, such that he was not going to risk a trip over to Gabeon to sacrifice at the altar there. So he sacrificed right on the Temple Mount, keeping his eye on the angel, <laughs> you know, not wanting to do anything. He was scared to death of what that angel could do, of that destruction that came along with it. I think David also clearly recognized God's approval of this location for the temple. Now, we're going to move quickly through chapter 22. We actually uh, kind of studied through it and taught through it a year and a half ago when we were talking about kind of comparing this to the building of our, of our church building in the future here. 
But I want to read through this and I'd like you to notice four quick things for a successful building of the temple. Four things that we see here that are needed, necessary for the temple building to be successful. We've already seen the first one. First one is a firm foundation. The threshing floor of Ornan, which David purchased, now the Temple Mount, is a firm foundation. And if you walk on the Temple Mount, you will see it is on bedrock. Now the, the walls around it that are built up, that Herod actually did most of the construction there, to kind of build this, this box on which the Temple could sit, those are, are man-constructed rock walls. But the Temple Mount itself is solid rock. And there are places, two places specifically, where that rock is exposed on top of the Temple Mount. One is in the Dome of the Rock. The other one is in a little cupola just north of the Dome of the Rock, which I think is more likely the location of the Ark of the Covenant where the temple was. That's the discussion we'll have in Israel. But a firm foundation is required. Here's the second thing required. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then David said, This is the house of the Lord God. And this is the altar a burnt offering for Israel. In other words, it shall be here from this day forward. This is the place. God has ordained it. Verse 2, So David gave orders to gather the foreigners who were in the land of Israel. And he set stone cutters to hew out stones to build the house of God. David prepared large quantities of iron to make the nails for the doors of the gates and for the clamps and more bronze than could be weighed. And timbers of cedar logs beyond number for the Zidonians, the Tyrians, they brought large quantities of cedar timber to David. David said, My son Solomon is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord shall be exceedingly magnificent, famous, and glorious throughout all lands. Therefore now I will make preparation for it. So David made ample preparations before his death. A couple more things to know. We need a firm foundation. Secondly, we need a devoted designer. A devoted designer. David will not build the temple. He's not going to lay one hand to a hammer. He's not going to lift one piece of timber. He's not going to have anything to do with the actual building. God said no to that one. Remember, God said, you're not going to build me a house, David. I'll build you one. But though David was not the chief chief, um, builder of the temple, he was in fact chief architect, designer, supplier, and financer all rolled into one. David did everything to have it completely ready to go when Solomon came on the scene. It was all set up ahead of time. You'll see more of this in just a moment. Solomon is going to be the general contractor. David was everything else. So a firm foundation, a devoted designer, number three, and a plethora of provisions. I just wanted to use the word plethora once in a teaching. (laughs) Tons of provisions. A plethora of provisions. Along the materials here, among the materials in verse 2, we note that stone cutters were brought together to hew out stones. Some of these stones I've mentioned before are in existence today. You can walk down the rabbi's tunnel at the side of the Temple Mount, go down there past the Western Wall, and look up and see stones that are original stones from the original Temple. Stones, gang, that are 40 feet long. Four to five feet in height. Four to five feet in width. And these suckers weigh a minimum each of around 110 tons. And we don't have cranes big enough to move stuff like that today. How did they do it? Some think they lined up logs, you know, and, and somehow, I don't know how they, once they cut it out, got it onto the logs, and lots and lots and lots of manpower working this thing and then rolling it a little bit and taking the logs from the back and running around to the front, setting it down and rolling it. But they got it all the way from this quarry that was not at the Temple Mount all the way to the Temple Mount. It was an underground quarry sometime, somewhere there in, in the uh, city of Jerusalem, 
or possibly right outside the city. They were stones that were hewn out of limestone, shaped and prepared to be moved by that massive effort. Again, we're not sure how they did it exactly. These stones were stacked up when the temple was being built. These stones of 110 tons each were stacked one on top of the other 200 feet high. How did they do it? No idea. Goliath was dead, so he wasn't available. I don't know how they did this. And they were so fine and so perfectly crafted and formed and cut that when they slid them into place, you couldn't even get a razor blade in between them. It was incredible craftsmanship. David's heart was for this to be the most beautiful, awe-inspiring structure in all the world. It's estimated that it cost five to eight billion dollars in David's day. That's not making the jump to what it would cost to build the same thing today with all the same. And I'll show you a few things that will blow your minds in a minute here. In David's day, five to eight billion dollars for the materials. That's not including the cost of labor, which we all know is where the real money is. Verse 6. Then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, My son, I had intended to build a house to the name of the Lord my God, but the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. Behold, a son will be born to you who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from his enemies on every side. For his name shall be Solomon. We've talked about this. Shlomo. Shalom, peace, peaceful. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son and I will be his father and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now my son, David's still speaking now to Solomon. The Lord be with you that you may be successful and build the house of the Lord your God just as he has spoken concerning you. Only the Lord give you discretion and understanding. And give you charge over Israel so that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper. If you're careful to observe the statutes and the ordinances which the Lord commanded Moses concerning Israel. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear nor be dismayed. Now behold, with great pains I have prepared for the house of the Lord 100,000 talents of gold, 1 million talents of silver, and bronze and iron beyond weight, for they are in great quantity, and also timber and stone I have prepared, and you may add to them. Moreover, there are many workmen with you, stone cutters and masons of stone and carpenters and all men who are skillful in every kind of work. Of the gold, the silver, and the bronze, and the iron, there's no limit. Arise and work, and may the Lord be with you. I want you to consider the cash David set aside for construction costs. Oh, how I would love to have this in our bank account today. 100,000 talents of gold is 3,750 tons. That's how much we're talking about here. By today's gold standard, and I looked it up yesterday, and I looked it up again today, we're talking about $111 billion worth of gold. Incredible. One million talents of silver. That's the equivalent of 37,500 tons of silver. Based on the silver standard, that's $16.5 billion of silver by today's standard. So now we're up to, what is that, $117.5 billion worth of gold and silver that David had set aside and amassed for the building and construction and cost of the temple. Amazing. 
And then he goes on to say, and you got bronze and iron too much to weigh. <laughs> We're not even going to worry about weighing that, figuring out how many talents of that we have, because there's so much. you got all you need, Solomon. Now you might say, well, I thought you said the temple cost five to eight billion. In David's day, five to eight billion. Now if we were to translate that to today, I can't even imagine. Far more than even the 117.5 billion in gold and silver that he had set aside. The materials cost five to eight billion in David's day, but that doesn't include the labor, which again is where I found out in building my house, that's where the cost really is. The bottom line, there was more than enough provision for the successful building of this glorious temple. And I want you to hear something that he just said. He says, the Lord, verse 12, give you discretion and understanding, charge over Israel so you may keep the law of the Lord your God, then you will, look at the word, prosper. Prosper. There are legitimate laws of success and prosperity in Scripture. Now, don't worry, I'm not going all prosperity gospel on you. I am not, and if you are, so be it. I'm not of the name it, claim it camp of Christianity. It says God wants you to be rich. I don't think He does. Because I would be. I'm not. There are laws of success and prosperity, however, that are legitimate, that work. There are healthy spiritual approaches to successful living in the Bible. You want to hear the best one? Jesus said it in Matthew 6.31, Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. Your Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. You seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. There is a number one, the principle for success in the Bible. You seek the kingdom. You seek first the things of God. His grandeur. His dominion. His glory. That's what David's saying here to Solomon. If you will keep the law of the Lord your God, you'll prosper. Solomon, he's going to cover you. He'll take care of all the needs. David's looking at his own life saying, I was a shepherd in the hills of Bethlehem and now I'm a shepherd of the people of Israel with the largest fighting force in the world, which I found out painfully with gold and silver and riches amassed so that this temple can be awesome. How did I get here? Well, really not by my strength, but because I love Jesus. Because I love the Lord. Because I sought the kingdom. Oh, Rick, you're so simple-minded. Success in life just isn't that easy. Oh, but it is. It is. It is. We have to pull ourselves out of the capitalistic mindset, not anti-capitalism, but we've got to pull ourselves out far enough to realize it is not the, the strength or the intelligence or the hard work of Rick that gets me what I have. I absolutely believe this. I've said it before. Every one of us in this room have exactly what God has determined we should have. Some of you have quite a bit more than I do. Some of you have quite a bit less. But God in His wisdom said, this is what Rick should have. And I've recognized in my own finances it's because God knows this is what Rick can handle. (laughs) Much more than this and it wouldn't be good. God knows what we need. This morning, I woke uh, to no water, went in to make my tea and turned on the thing and it went... Great. That happens from time to time on the top of the hill there at Quinn Drive. No water. It just doesn't get up to us. It's a little frustrating. I looked around and there's our busted refrigerator which went out about... Four days ago, we found water actually on the floor one morning. We went, oh, what's going on here? Open the fridge. Everything was warm. Ruins. Throw out all the food. And call Maytag. Well, the good news is Maytag did come today and they checked out the refrigerator. And I'm, I'm not uh, 
Oh yeah, I'm going to say this. Don't buy Maytag. Every Maytag appliance that we have has had a problem. Every one. This refrigerator is four years old. The compressor went out. When the compressor goes out, you might as well buy a new refrigerator. Thankfully, Maytag is going to cover this. But they're not going to cover it until July the 6th. We are without a refrigerator with six children until July the 6th. We had no water this morning. And to make matters worse, I sat down and turned on my computer and started reading about a flopping and failing economy and the fact that dollars going down the toilet and everything's going haywire. And for a moment there, for a moment, I said, Lord, this is not a good day. This is not a good day. <coughs> Two simple words. Trust me. Trust me. And we're right back to prayer over pride and to faith over force. And to David saying here to Solomon, Arise and work, and may the Lord be with you. That's something you and I can really count on. May the Lord be with you. Now, watch how all this ends. Remember, David provided a firm foundation there in the Temple Mount, purchasing the land. A devoted designer. He designed it all himself. In the plans, his hands are all over this thing. A plethora of provisions. These three things, but there's one more thing Solomon has to have to complete this temple for the successful building of the temple. And that is, number four, a helping hand. He must have a helping hand. David now calls the leaders of all the people to build. Verse 17, David also commanded all the leaders of Israel to help his son Solomon, saying, Is not the Lord your God with you? And has he not given you rest on every side? For he has given the inhabitants of the land into my hand. And the land is subdued before the Lord and before his people. Now set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. By the way, the heart and the soul. The heart is the seat of my passion, my emotion, my desire. Set that on the Lord your God. The soul It's my mind, my intellect, my thoughts. Set it on the Lord. Get it all there, focused on God, to seek Him. Arise, therefore, and build the sanctuary of the Lord God, so that you may bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the holy vessels of God into the house that is being built for the name of the Lord. David calls on everyone. And with all this, David ends by saying to Solomon, his son, Build a house for the name of the Lord. Solomon didn't build it. He oversaw it. But he didn't build it. He wasn't out there daily hewing the great rocks and the stones from the quarry or crafting the fine gold or nailing and securing the timber doors. He wasn't the one that was overlaying the whole thing with gold and silver. And by the way, it said that the original temple was absolutely stunning because it was overlaid in pure gold. And the sun would come up as it is wont to do on the hills of of Israel, on the hills of Jerusalem, and shine down and that temple would just gleam. It was supposedly breathtaking. Solomon didn't do it. He just oversaw it. It was not something he could do. David commands the leaders to help. He will, we'll see Sunday. He commands the people to be a part of this and to help Solomon. The building of the temple required a massive effort on the part of all Israel, not just on Pastor Solomon or the leadership of the the people of Israel. Notice the emphasis again. David says to the leaders, set your heart, that place of devotion, that passion, and set your soul to seek the Lord your God. And the same applies to us. You know, I was reading this and I could not help but think about the firm foundation of property we have over on Troxel Road. 
and the building that we want to see take place. Not for ourselves, but for the work of the Lord. And what strikes me about this chapter is we have a firm foundation. And we have a devoted designer. And we have a plethora of provision. If, if we will but trust the Lord. As with David, there's one more thing the Son of David calls for in this fellowship, and that's helping hands. For everyone to be in. For everyone to be involved. And I've had people ask me, well, what can I do? And I don't know what you can do, because I don't even know what I'm doing. But, you know, talk to Jeff or talk to one of the elders, and as we start going down the road, there will be more and more opportunity to be engaged and be involved. But it's bigger than the building. It's bigger than a physical structure. Gang, we have a firm foundation in Jesus Christ. And we have a devoted designer in our Creator Father God. And a plethora of provision in our lives. You know what's funny about my refrigerator and the reason I told you that story? We have a refrigerator downstairs. You know, it's not like in the pioneer days when the icebox went, you know, bad. That was it. I mean, we just move the stuff down. It's a hassle. I hate going up and down the stairs. I probably need the exercise. But how bad is it really? Oh no, my refrigerator went out. I've got a second one. Oh no, my TV's on the brink. Oh, the blitz. I, I've got a, you know, two or three of those. Oh, my computer's been. Oh, I'll just go use another one. You realize how filthy rich we are? And how pathetic we are? I mean, pathetic for me to sit there and go, Lord, please heal my refrigerator. You know, I'm on it and I'm trying to get it. How ridiculous is that? Gang, we, we focus on, this, on, the, on the physical stuff here, and it's just not about that. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.11, No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. It's not Troxel Road after all. The firm foundation is Jesus. And he says, If any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, that is the provisions. God's given us all kinds of provisions with which to build in the kingdom. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it's to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. We have been called to the greatest building effort of all history, and it's not a temple and it's not a church building. It is a kingdom. It's a dominion. It is seeing souls saved to the person of Jesus Christ. What can I do? How can I be a helping hand? I can hammer or I can saw. I can do. That's not what's necessary. What's necessary is your willingness as a devoted disciple to bring Jesus to people who don't know Him. And I say this on almost a weekly basis, but I know if you sat down and wrote out five names, you could come up immediately with five names of people you know who do not know Jesus. Talk to them. Tell them. The Lord is asking for helping hands. We've got the firm foundation, the devoted designer. We have all the provision we need. Tell them about Jesus. We'll finish with this verse, Ephesians 2.19. You're no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens with the saints who are of God's household. And by the way, the word house that's used for the temple, it also means family. Interesting, God would choose that word to describe His temple when God's primary concern is to surround Himself with His family.
You are of God's household, Paul says. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. That is the the fifth temple. The temple of all eternity. God Himself. And we are being built into Him. That's the kingdom we're called to build. Arise, trust in the Lord, and let's get to work. Father, I pray, thanking You for the foundation, thanking You for the designs, Father, thanking You for the provision, but now just asking, Father, would You motivate us to get out and spread the good news of Jesus Christ, the Gospel. Father, we don't need a new program, a new plan, a new way of doing it. We don't need to figure out how to be relevant to this culture. We just need to talk about Jesus in our relationships with friends and family. Lord, I pray for divine appointments. I pray for divine opportunities. I pray for for courage and boldness. Just among those of us here tonight. How wonderful would it be, Father, if just out of this group tonight, each one of us were able to speak Jesus into one life this year. We would double our size tonight in saved people. It's so simple. Father, motivate us. Draw us forward. Give us the words at the right time with the right people when you want it spoken. May we walk out our discipleship as evangelists for you, building into the kingdom, the household of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.